Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and it is another Friday. Coming up, I'm going to chat with Sarah Langan, whose book, Good Neighbors, is phenomenal. It's really about what is happening in this country. Why are we tearing each other apart? And what are the inevitable results of that? Then New York Times TV critic Margaret Lyons recommends three new shows, one of which involves a train car full of corgis. And the holiday celebrated on a corgi car is called the Feast of a Thousand Chicken Nuggets, which I think is a pretty good feast. But first, it's our panel about the week that was. Our guests this week are Hannah Rosen, who runs podcasts at New York Magazine. Hannah, hey. Hi. And we have Jillian White, managing editor at The Atlantic. Jillian, welcome. Thank you. Okay, so I think we should start this week as we often do with COVID. Um, Now that more and more Americans are getting vaccinated, there's controversy around the idea of a vaccine passport. Could or should governments or businesses require people to show proof of vaccination before doing certain things, especially around, you know, international travel, for example? The Biden administration has been pretty clear that there will not be a federal mandate, and the Republican governors of Texas and Florida have signed executive orders banning any kind of vaccine passport requirement. Meanwhile, Norwegian Cruise Lines just submitted a plan to the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention to require all passengers and employees to be vaccinated. I'm curious where y'all fall on this spectrum of, like, completely reasonable safety protocol given the global pandemic to, like massive violation of privacy and unjust rules. Uh, Jillian, let's start with you. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one, right? So obviously the sentiment, the desire to know whether or not the people around you are going to be vaccinated, especially if you're going on something like a cruise, which, I mean, if you're going on a cruise right now, you are a brave, brave, brave human. (laughs) Um, But I understand that. I think the big issue is that there are two camps of folks who are kind of opposing it. And one camp of folks uh, that I've seen, at least, are conservatives who are like, we don't have to tell you anything. Mm -hmm. You should not be collecting information. And also, we want to do what we want to do whenever we want to do it. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily support that theory of the case. (laughs) But I do think that there is a reason to be concerned about vaccine passports. Because essentially, what you're going to say is that we're not going to allow people to re-enter society in a meaningful way unless they have some sort of card or something else that says they've been vaccinated. What we know is that a large group of people who have not been able to get vaccinated Mm -hmm. are people of color, people from lower socioeconomic classes, um, and people who have a hard time getting out to vaccination sites. So saying that we are going to hold them up in their homes, and also a lot of those people still have to go to work, still have to do lots of other things. Mm -hmm. So what we're essentially punishing them for is a country's inability to effectively get their population equitably vaccinated. Right. So I think we're here in this really weird conundrum, and that gives me a lot of pause. Hannah, what do you think? 
Oh, I'm pro. First of all, people are subject to this anyway. If you're like a contract FedEx driver and you don't have a COVID test from the doctor, you can't go back to work. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if people are living free and easy. I think this will force a decision on people. And by people, I mean both governments to get everybody vaccinated because we need people to go back to work Mm -hmm. and to people who are resisting the vaccine if they know that they have to get the vaccine in order to rejoin society, then they will go and get the vaccine. I mean, you can't go to school if you're not vaccinated. You can't go to school if you haven't been to the dentist. So it's not like this counts as some like oppressive rule, like kids need to get vaccinated or, you know, you have to get a religious exemption. Like Mm -hmm. there are lots of rules already in place in order to support public health. This isn't like a new frontier of privacy that we're crossing. It's like, you want to go to third grade, you have to be vaccinated. It's just like that. Yeah, I mean, there are just certain times where the good of the entire group, where public health is more important than your desire to be cagey about whether or not you got a vaccination, right? (laughs) So one huge story from this week is actually something that happened a couple weeks ago, but people are still talking about it. I am referring to Georgia. The state legislature there enacted a bunch of new voting laws. Uh, Lawmakers say the point was to help with voter fraud. But it's also being criticized for essentially targeting black voters. Now, there are a lot of layers to this story, obviously. One really fascinating one that I think came up more recently is the role corporations are playing in calling foul. Um, Speaking of calling foul, sorry for the really bad pun. A great example is that Major League Baseball is actually pulling its all-star game and the league's draft from Atlanta. Other huge companies like Delta and Coca-Cola have spoken out against the law. Um, I, I just find this really interesting that like, apparently our moral center is reliant upon huge corporations calling out the state. What do you think about it, Jillian? I mean, there are very few, I think there was Patagonia and maybe one other group that said something ahead of the bill actually getting passed, right? Which is the actual time where you can create real change. Mm -hmm. Um, so this wave afterwards of all of these groups who have operations in Georgia, all of a sudden, you know, finding a moral voice and saying, this is so horrible, you shouldn't have done this. There was an actual time where you could have exhibited some real pressure on the state to not do it. And you chose not to do it then. You chose to do it now after it's happened when the stakes are pretty much gone. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't necessarily buy that. I think Major League Baseball pulling the all-star game that actually potentially has some impact. Mm -hmm. You're pulling actual dollars away from the state. Yeah, that's bucks. Right. So, you know, that does something. But in general, I think the cries afterwards, like, oh, that was so horrible. We wish you hadn't done it, but we also didn't tell you not to do it. Um, You know, they don't really track with me. (laughs) Well, especially, I mean, like, if we're talking about Delta and Coca-Cola, like, they have lobbyists. You have people, you pay an exorbitant amount of money just to make a difference in the legislation of this country and the state. You have massive operations in the state. So you hold massive amounts of power and, you know, coming out after the fact, I I think it tells us, you know, how much change uh, they really hope to affect there. Hmm. What do you think, Hannah? This is like, this is not a political issue. There should never be a law that makes it harder to vote. And it's not a political stance to say there should never be a law that makes it harder to vote. Mm. That's not political. 
it is just a basic citizen. We should always make it easier for people to vote. And it should not be controversial for corporations to stand up and say we should make it easier for people to vote. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like while there's a history of like, do we really want corporations to take public stances like we're it feels like we're way past that point. Don't you guys think like I feel like yeah. right now so much of our world is determined by like like Facebook, like Mark Zuckerberg, all these hearings that they always have like they are under the gun to make certain decisions that would make our lives easier as citizens. They do have way more power and control than the government has on a lot of different things. So I feel like I'm kind of happy that there's pressure and that the conversation is shifting such that corporations have to reckon with what power they actually have. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I think the ship sailed on kind of the idea of the quiet non-political, non-commenting on any issue corporation quite some time ago. But I agree with you. You know, the idea that this is even a political issue versus saying voting is a right. It is a right that we all agreed about and that we're all excited about and that in general, people should be able to vote and we should do things that make that easier, not harder. Um, and to make that a political stance is kind of a completely separate issue. Well, especially given that voter fraud is like not real, you know, I feel like that's been proven time and time again, that like, sure, there might be like one or two cases here or there, but like the allegations that there's like massive voter fraud happening is just like not a thing. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I guess I feel like there's something extra dystopian about the fact that like so many of us are feeling so powerless that the best we can do is hope that Patagonia is going to chime in at some point in the process. (laughs) You know, like that's the thing that really blows my mind. And like, if you think like, what can I do as a single human person sitting in my closet right now talking to y'all compared to Delta? You know, it's like maybe you can drink Pepsi. (laughs) That's what you can do. Exactly. Like, I get feeling powerless and I I get that maybe this is the new reality in terms of like, this is what capitalism is, right? Is like, we just hope that like, maybe at least they'll pretend to be ethical sometimes, you know? Yeah. yeah. And we'll call that a win. Um, so in other much less impactful, but still very impassioned news, we learned recently that Reggae Jean Page, who's the actor who played the Duke of Hastings in season one of Shonda Rhimes's very sultry Netflix drama Bridgerton will not be returning for season two. People are extremely upset about this. Um, now, both of you watched season one, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> Hannah, let's start with you. Are you going to watch season two because of this news? You know, it's to- the news doesn't affect me. Mm. I feel like Bridgerton is a mood. Do you know what I mean? I did think about Bridgerton season two and I was like, Shonda Rhimes, as always, caught us in exactly the right mood. Mm. Right. So like every we were all like pandemic. And then she just gave us this little bit of ridiculous candy. Mm -hmm. Will I still be in the mood for that little bit of ridiculous candy when I'm actually allowed to go out to a store and buy some actual (laughs) candy? Like. I, I I cannot promise you that. It totally depends on my mood. So I don't know. I the I was thinking when you asked that question, why is he the one? Like what is it about him that hits the spot? I mean, besides that he's hot, like what is it about his hotness that's like exactly right? Yeah, I mean I'm very curious to hear what you think about this, Julian. I would say, I mean, 
it wasn't even his character. I kind of hated his character. He was a crabby child with daddy issues, but he was beautiful. And when it comes to like the candy element of that show, I think like he brought that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so then it's just sort of like, well, what is this show? If like the super hot main character dude doesn't exist in it anymore. I mean, as someone who is truly devastated by this news, <laughs> to the point where I did not want to talk about it, um, I just—you could just watch him recite the alphabet right. over and over and over again and be entertained. And as someone who is a connoisseur of pulpy TV shows, <laughs> and absolutely will show up for the first episode of Bridgerton and see how I feel about it, I just. I'm going to show up, but it's begrudgingly, Mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to show up to look at his handsome face again and again and again. And I just don't know that I'm excited about it if he's not there. And, you know, I'm getting one of the other Bridgerton brothers, which is a little snoozy. Who all kind of look the same. All kind of look alike. You know, they're brothers. So I guess maybe that's good, but it was hard to tell them apart, I will say. Um, So Jillian, would you be less mad about it if you found out that this frees him up to like be James Bond, for example? Listen, I'm going to say that I want him to thrive and be happy in whatever he does. Right? You know, I understand that as an artist, he wants to do different things. I just feel like a James Bond, I'm going to have to wait a while for another series. I'm going to have to wait a while for it. And what I would like to know is precisely when I'm going to see you again. And he doesn't have an answer for me. And I find that a little devastating. So speaking of Shonda shows, before I let y'all go, Jillian, this one is especially directed at you, but I'm curious what you think too, Hannah. Our producer, Isabel, has this theory that watching Grey's Anatomy during the pandemic times is a cry for help. Um, Well, that's a problem. (laughs) Now, Jill, I know you have been watching, which is why I say this question is directed at you. Uh, You're a self-aware human. What do you you think? What I would say is that Yes. I mean, I think so, right? It has to be. You're basically starting out 16 years, 15 years ago, and redoing a lot of bad fashions, a lot of very emo uh, plot lines. It's it's not great. (laughs) Hannah, what do you have a Gray's opinion for these times? Oh, uh, this is a political stand for me. (laughs) I love that you were like, COVID is not political. Georgia voting is not political. Gray's anatomy is political. Guys, it's totally political. Every freaking person in my life gathers every night, like it's 1995, and they sit around and watch Grey's Anatomy. I feel like it's been going on for 17 years, and I have not seen one minute oh, of it. Wow. I know. I, I have a real visceral resistance to like genre formula. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like Whether it's procedural, I don't know what it is. It, I just can't. I just can't get into it. It makes me itchy. I have like a visceral response to oh, it. Wow. I don't think it's bad. I, this isn't like an aesthetic judgment. I have nothing interesting to say critically about this kind of thing. I totally get why people love it. I just can't do it. It's just not for you. But My uh, last point about grades <laughs> is <laughs> Go on. the useful thing about it is that it just wipes through your brain like water like not I retained nothing and I watched the first five seasons probably really inconsistently but it was like watching it anew I had no idea how things actually progressed just basic plot lines um and it was a little maddening 
Yeah, that for me, I think is RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. Just so you don't think I'm like a TV snob. That's in that way I watch RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) Well, Hannah, Jillian, thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. Y'all are the best. Anytime. Super fun. Thanks for having me. You know that feeling when you read a book and you kind of just can't get it out of your head? Well, that happened with me recently when I devoured Good Neighbors a couple of weeks ago. It's about Arlo and Gertie Wilde, a couple and their two kids who move from like a sketchy apartment in the city to picture-perfect suburban Long Island. It's the American dream, except it goes really, really terribly. This is a book about belonging and vulnerability. It's also about what happens when the conditions are just right for a group of well-intentioned people to do a lot of extremely horrible things. You know early on in this book that somebody kills somebody, but I kind of want to leave it at that for the sake of spoilers, if we can help it. Good Neighbors is by Sarah Langan, who's here now. Sarah, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, So I kind of want to start with something that a friend of mine, Liberty Hardy, said about uh, what happened when she read this book. She's an editor over at Book Riot. And she said her immediate reaction was essentially like, oh, my God, I loved this so much. Am I a terrible person? (laughs) (laughs) Which I think sums up kind of how conflicted I am about this book, too, because it's like I want to tell people that it's great and delicious and like so compulsively readable. But I also feel like I have to be like, it's also about a lot of really intense topics. Well, you know, uh, I was asked uh, to fill out some, you know, you fill out a lot of interviews when you when you publish a book. And Mm -hmm. one of the questions was, this book is incredibly dark. What brought you to this place? And my Mm -hmm. answer was, it's actually not that dark. This kind of stuff I'm writing about, far worse things happen in most thrillers. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that people re- are reacting to it is because they believe it. It's not stylized yes. and I'm not making a joke and I'm not writing wish fulfillment where like some great girl detective, you know, conquers all. It's really about what is happening in this country. Why are we tearing each other apart? And what are the inevitable results of that? Yeah, I think you're really right. The believability and the reality of it is something that that almost feels really brutal, but does make it also so fascinating to read because you're right. Like I was with every character in every choice that they made, even when it was totally outrageous. Like I believed that that's where they would end up because you set it up so perfectly. Well, yeah, you, you don't have the permission of checking out of saying like, you know, this is the girl with the dragon tattoo, and it's so crazy fun, but it wouldn't really happen. <laughs> but I'm learning about, you know, techno thrillers, and it's cool. Um, it's really, I think, I tried to write the most realistic, sympathetic characters that I could. And I tried to tell the most American story that I could. And I think what people re- are reacting to is, like, they love the story, and it hits home. And uh, it should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sure does. So you have a background in horror writing. You've actually won the Bram Stoker Award three times. And it got me really curious about if you think of Good Neighbors as being a departure from the genre. I don't. I think uh, so. I was trying to write a story when I was writing Good Neighbors uh, that was a typical horror story. I was trying to explore 
America and the ways that we're ripping each other apart and the ways that social media has played such an incredible hand in that and, and, the, and the media in general um, and these false binaries. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost ridiculous that the computers and their actual binaries have created <laughs> false binaries <laughs> with humans. Um, but I couldn't make it work because I had a monster in it. And I realized that the story, the real story was these conversations between individuals and these misunderstandings. And um, so once I realized that, that was the story I wrote. Um, but it still has the, the plot of a horror novel. It's just there's no monsters and nothing grotesque or horrific happens in it. So, you know, so it's uh, an expansion and a departure at the same time. Mm-hmm. What attracts you to horror in the first place? Uh, there's there's different impetuses behind creating art, and I think some people uh, want to tell aspirational stories or uh, diversions, you know, that are in their own right uh, great. Um, but my impetus has always been to say, like, look at this thing, um, mm-hmm. look at the unfairness of this, or um, can you believe this is happening? And I think. Uh, I did it through metaphor and monster. And, yeah. and I think, I think we, we tend to be, it's just because we're pattern recognition species, we pretend, we tend to be afraid of things that we've imposed patterns on false patterns. And I think my job, um, because it's just something that I see and something that, uh, I think I'm equipped to do is to, to talk about what we should actually be afraid of versus what we are afraid of. Mm. Whether it be the horror genre or the thriller, you know, whatever people box, people want to put that in. Yeah. Are you ever conflicted about the people, the fact that people love those genres so much? Um, how do you mean conflicted? You know, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm conflicted about like I tend to not. I don't really do true crime. I think because there's something in my conscience that's sort of like, but these are real people. Like you shouldn't like get such pleasure out of reading about that or listening about that. I, um, whereas, you know, like I'm okay. I'll go, I'll go down that path with a thriller any day. And like, it's usually a pretty good time, but I don't know. I guess maybe it kind of goes back to that thing. Liberty said too, right. Where it's like, am I a monster? <laughs> well, I think it depends. So I loved this documentary. There's something wrong with aunt Diane. Mm, and uh, okay. it's it's the story of the mom on the min- with the minivan who drives the kids. Oh God, yeah, on the divider. What a horrible story! Yeah, it's a horrible story. But it it yeah. offers it's very honest and it offers this insight into her that no one else had, and it mm. shows the people around her and the kind of help that she needed that she wasn't getting. And I thought that that documentary did a wonderful job. But then you look at the one where there's the documentary that about the woman who whose mother had Manchanson by proxy. Yes, yeah. And then they, you know, that was kind of horrific to watch because it was so awful. Like, I don't write about stuff like that. I'm not enjoying the grotesquerie of humanity. Right. I really, my stories are very much about regular people who aren't mm-hmm. doing anything grotesque. They're just living their lives and that's enough. But so in this story, this mom, the Manchanson by proxy, that was more difficult to watch because it seemed to to be like, look, look how gross this is. But yeah, it, then it got yeah. even worse because they made 
a movie about it. Right. Which I was like, that's disgusting. Of course, I'm never going to watch that movie because it's so gleeful about this horrible tragedy instead of offering some kind of insight into why did this happen? What's the cultural relevance of the story? Why are we telling it? Yeah. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter what the genre is, if it's true crime, if it's a thriller, if it's horror, if it's literary, it just has to be a good story and it's um, motivation shouldn't be purient. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> there are so many fascinating elements to in the in terms of the dynamics between the kids and adults. And again, without giving anything, I don't know. I mean, I think it's fair to say that pretty much all of the adults in that neighborhood end up behaving really terribly to the point where even their children who are literally children know better. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read a lot of reactions that said just that. Um, I really don't think the parents were that bad. Um, (laughs) I think, I think there were a couple of families that were rotten apples. I think it was a bad combination of circumstances um, you know, the main family, I thought they behaved pretty well. They just, That's they made true. a couple of mistakes yeah. as we yeah. all do. And then there were some other families who just didn't know what to do, but I don't think they're bad at all. I think they're, it's their, their fears and their best instincts are, are manipulated. Yeah. Does that mean that you forgive the characters at the actions they take based on fear in the book? Yeah, absolutely. You do? Yeah. I, it's frust- the the characters who frustrate me the most are the ones who double down even after there's the obvious 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 evidence in sort yeah. of the the epilogue. Mm-hmm. Um, those you know almost they're almost comic relief. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the rest of them I do forgive. I think uh, you know that people don't always know what to do. Yeah. Well, and how much then is the resulting damage the fact that they, it seems like a lot of them can't forgive themselves afterwards either. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's worse to have done the bad thing and know it. Um, Even those people who can't admit it, there's this one character who's the reporter who kind of comes back and you realize at the end there's something wrong with him. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of the case with people who refuse to admit the truth. Yeah. I think that's right. And I think this book shows that in a really beautiful and empathetic way. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for writing it and for chatting with me about it. (laughs) After the break, TV critic Margaret Lyons will join us to talk about all the shows to have on your radar this spring. She also weighs in on the Grey's Anatomy question and has some very enlightened thoughts of her. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It has been 13 months since the pandemic made me start working from home and living in my apartment very intensely. Uh, I think it's fair to say I'm starting to feel like I have seen everything worth watching on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. I've done some dabbling in the Disney Pluses and the Apple Pluses and the Maxes and the Peacocks and dear Lord, there are so many. Um, It's actually gotten so bad that I have resorted to watching the 26-year-old medical drama ER from the very beginning, so you could say the situation is dire. Here to help me freshen up my watch list is Margaret Lyons. She's the TV critic for the New York Times. Margaret, hello. Hello. So what is your favorite TV show to watch right now? There's a bunch of stuff coming up that I am really like happy about. So season two of Couples Therapy is coming out in a couple of weeks and mm-hmm. I watched all of it like you know sort of Pringles style like just <laughs> once you pop you just can't stop <laughs> yeah season one aired on Showtime and season two is on Showtime but season one is now streaming on Amazon Prime too if you don't have Showtime uh, it's available through April 30th um, it's a documentary style series about a couple therapist and it sort of follows a handful of couples through a long-term kind of like therapeutic process. You really feel like that? I, of course I feel like that. That's what I'm telling you. I never, I never knew that, Alan. Like you've never expressed that, like that you felt like Because it's like, I just don't want to make a a thing about anything. Like my approach is different. Like I just like tuck it away. Like I don't say anything. The business of tucking things away doesn't really work to sustain a real marriage. And you really just see how therapy works and Hmm. how people participate in it and what they get from it. And it's really riveting. Like I'm somebody who's just sort of, you know, I'm a dialogue person, I'm a story person, I'm a character person. And so seeing this sort of real life development of um, kind of watching wisdom develop before your eyes is really something that, that I think is hard to find in another format. Hmm. Um, So what else, what else are you excited about that's coming up? Um, the final season of Younger. I love mm. Younger. I feel like the, um, you know, our kind of appetite for very fizzy, kind of light, uh, easy breezy viewing is is high, uh-huh. at least for me. <laughs> so yeah, I watched 11 episodes of Younger yesterday and they're pretty good. Oh, 11. <laughs> wow. In my defense, um, they're, they're only, it's half hour episodes. So it's like 25 minutes at a time. But um <laughs> You know, it's it's still it's kind of like weird self where like three quarters of the show is really good and one quarter is sort of like unbearably stupid. My wild soul was reawakened by his throbbing tongue on my nipple. Was that sexy? Oh, super sexy. Yeah. But it happens so fast that you're like, oh, let's not, you know, let's not split hairs here. <laughs> if you don't dwell on it, it works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also excited for Infinity Train um, that started out on Cartoon Network and is now on HBO Max. It's funny and cute and strange. I just I really like that show a lot. I think it is it's for young viewers, but I like I don't think you need to be a kid to appreciate um, it's like imagination and style. Wow! 
are you my mum? Well, what? What? Am I what? Are you my mum? No. So you've come to bring me the sweet release of death. Also, no. It's just like really fun and beautiful and strange. You know, they, there's like a every car of this train is its own kind of universe. Um, one is totally inhabited by corgis. I was going to ask, as a corgi owner, I was like, I'm pretty sure there's some corgi content in this show. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's very important. There is corgi content. Yes. <laughs> and the holiday celebrated on the corgi car is called the Feast of a Thousand Chicken Nuggets, which <laughs> I think is a pretty good feast. <laughs> I, was, I was like, okay, show, you got me. All right. Yep. I'm delighted by that. <laughs> yep. Go on. <laughs> uh, and the other show I watched recently that's coming out soon that I liked a lot is called Rutherford Falls, and that's coming to Peacock. Uh, that stars Ed Helms and Janice Schmeeding. There's something happening in that town. This is a story about stories. Damn. The podcasting voice is very manipulative. <laughs> it's very similar to Parks and Rec. Like, if, if you like Parks and Rec, you'll like this. Oh, great. Um, and Mike Schur is among its creators. It's, like, one of the first shows that has, like, a mostly Native American writing staff and cast. And it's um, it's set in, like, a small town where there's sort of some clash between members of a fictionalized Native American tribe and uh, white people in the town. And um, But, like, funny, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, is, it, it is actually very funny and... and <laughs> And like the story really moves, which I think a lot of comedies kind of struggle with. I I thought it was a lot of fun. So I have mentioned to you before my ER rewatch. I actually stopped a while back and have been watching new things. Thank you very much. Um, But as I was talking with our producer about this segment earlier this week, they mentioned that (laughs) they have this theory that rewatching Grey's Anatomy is a call for help. (laughs) I was curious what you think about that. (laughs) Okay, I'm not, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think, I don't know, in terms of cry for help, I feel like we've all been in such a state of like emotional hibernation during the pandemic. And, Mm. and I've heard from tons of my friends that like, they feel like they can't get attached to any show right now that everything is kind of behind glass. And so I think like (laughs) Grey's Anatomy would actually be a good show to kind of help you break your hard candy shell a little bit Um, that you could kind of, if, right, because it's sort of, it's, it's easy enough that like it's it's not asking that much from its viewer um, as a buy-in, but there's enough sort of I don't know emotional like tornadoes happening that I think it will kind of wake you from some of the slum- slumber a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if anyone listening to this wants to tweet me their Gray's rewatch experiences, I would absolutely love to hear about them. <laughs> okay, we could get that going. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret, thank you so much. You're the best. Thanks for having me. Before we let you go today, we want to alert you to something very interesting happening over across the pond. Do you remember the 2004 hit Mr. Brightside by the Killers? If you heard it back then, odds are it has just been stuck in your head since then because it is extremely catchy. I am here to tell you this tune has been on the UK's top 100 chart for five fucking years. A BBC article with the headline, Mr. Brightside, the hit that just won't die, says its popularity continues without any promotional effort. What is going on? I have no idea. And I can't decide how mad I am about it.
I guess I'm glad it's not the U.S., but I mean, this song is going to be stuck in my head for the rest of the weekend, at least. All right, that's it for today. Keep an eye out for our book club author interview with Danielle Evans. That is coming out this coming Tuesday. The book this month is The Office of Historical Corrections, and it is really, really, really good. So stay tuned for that. This episode is produced by me and Isabel Carter, who loves Grey's Anatomy. And our executive producer is Brendan Manizak, who has also never seen an episode. All right, we'll catch you on the flip side. Peace. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.